Everyone has a relationship with gender. What's your story? Hello and welcome to Gender Stories with your host, Dr. Alex Yantafi. Hello and welcome to another episode of Gender Stories, dear listeners. This is your host, Dr. Alex Yantafi. This episode was recorded as an Instagram Live for Pages of Acne. And Pages of Acne is a small award-winning bookshop on the Lower Clapton Road in London, United Kingdom. Their priority is to be a friendly, welcoming community bookshop that feels accessible and inclusive. They want each customer to feel that the bookshop is for them, and they do their best to give their customers individually as much time and thought as they can. It's also important to them to support the issues and authors that they believe in and to give a platform to marginalized voices in publishing. They hosted the fabulous author, presenter, and model Jamie Windust and Hi for a conversation. Jamie is the author of In Their Shoes. They're also a contributing editor at Gay Times and a speaker for TEDx London. This was the first time that Jamie and I met and we had a lot of fun talking about our books and what's it like to be a non-binary author. And I hope that you enjoyed this conversation as much as we enjoyed having it. Thank you for listening. Hello, my love. How are you? <laughs> I'm honestly a little bit nervous about this whole Instagram live thing, but now we're both here. I can relax. How are you? <laughs> no, don't be stressed. I'm good. I'm good. How are you? You look brilliant. Thank you. Likewise. I love how we can do this across time and distance. Thank you to the tec- the internet technology, <laughs> which I'm all happy to, to remember not having. Who knew that this was the technology we have nowadays? Who knew? I know. This is fantastic. I'm so excited that we get to share the space together. Um, Oh, I'm going to follow Joe's beautiful instruction. And I'm going to let everybody know that both Jamie's brilliant book, In Their Shoes, and my book, Gender Trauma, are both available to buy from Pages of Acne. We're still trading online as well as being open for browsing. And you can order from their website. I believe the link is in the bio. And uh, you can collect the book. It can be delivered by bike to you if you live in Hackney or it can be posted probably anywhere in the world. And this event is free for you to attend. However, you can still show your support with a donation and all contributions for this event will be donated to Sister Space, a community-based nonprofit initiative created to bridge the gap in domestic abuse services for African heritage women and girls. So thank you for your donation if you donate and welcome to our live. (laughs) (laughs) Anything I've forgotten? No, 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 not at all. I mean, I'm just still very impressed that they're delivering books by bike. I think that's very impressive. Right, that's what I thought too when I saw that. I was like, that is very impressive. Right. What what should we do? Like this is very transparent moment of transparent process. We both have a book. We can talk about it. We can read from it. What would you like to do today? Absolutely. Well, I'm very interested in your book. So let's start there. Let's start gender trauma. What made you? Should we do like a back and forth? So okay. So we can ask each other. What made you want to 
dive into such a an intense topic um but also a very cathartic one what made you want to explore that what a beautiful question um yes <laughs> well i feel like i've always been intrigued by this idea of gender since i was like a little kid right even before i read gender theory and judy butler and all that good stuff i remember being like you know, six or seven and wearing sweatpants and having short hair and people would think I was a boy. And I didn't know the term gender euphoria then, but I knew there was something very suspect about gender. If a pair of pants and a haircut could make people think I was a completely different gender, which I found quite exhilarating. And, uh, you know, and even as a teenager, I would joke that dressing femininely felt like drag and people would be like, it's not drag, that's who you are. But I was like, but am I? You know, and this was like the 70s and the early 80s in Italy. So it's not like we were surrounded by trans and non-binary model, models at the time. But as well as those moments of gender euphoria and playing with gender, I was also really aware how impactful kind of the rigid gender binary was in my life and in the lives of those around me, you know, kind of, for example, Divorce wasn't even legal when I was born in Italy. It became legal that year. Abortion wasn't legal. I remember when my country voted for abortion. And so just realizing kind of how much is tied up with this idea of gender and then kind of getting older and getting into the scholarly work. And one of the ideas that I had over the last few years was, you know, we all seem to carry some trauma when it comes to gender in different ways. You know, really, I do think that trans and non-binary folks really bear the brand and especially folks of color. And also all of us are really impacted by this weird uh, rigid gender binary, which is a fairly modern idea. And it's also a very settler colonial idea. So, you know, as I was training people and brewing this idea, I kept talking about it with Mac John, you know, my co-author and friend and a writing partner of uh, many years now. And they were like, you've got to write this book. And I was like, yeah, but is it going to make sense to anybody else but uh, who's not in my brain and who's making all these connections? Turns out mm -hmm. it does make sense to people. Um, but I have to say it was the hardest book I've ever written. Um, as I was writing it, I was just feeling the heaviness of it, you know, um, noticing the freeze responses in my body, um, really needing to take a lot of breaks from writing it, um, noticing even nightmares at night sometimes when I was writing it, because I was really delving into like a really heavy side of not just my own experience, but the collective trauma that I think we all carry about gender. Um, but the more I talked about it with other people and the more things connected with them, the more I knew I had to write it. I had to, I hadn't seen anything out there that made these connections. You know, in some ways my book doesn't really, it's not new research. It doesn't say anything revolutionary. What it does is weaves together things from different disciplines. It weaves together different ideas in one framework that I haven't really seen many people um, use, especially in academia or to train therapists or educators. And so I really felt um, that given that this book had been in my brain for like five plus years, I had to get it out there and I had to see whether it would make sense to, to other folks. I don't know, does that answer your beautiful question? Yeah, no, definitely. I love that. I think it's really important that you, um, and I relate to this massively, uh, you know, as queer and trans people, when it comes to telling stories or writing about our lives, 
it, it can get very difficult. And I think what is great is that you, in the publishing world, we, we can find very supportive allies that can help us um, to understand that, you know, sometimes we need to not write for a month or sometimes we need to, to, to put this down because, you know, we're, we're essentially, like, like you've just described, dredging up our lives and, and putting it out there and hoping that other people can make sense of it or relate to it. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think it's really, it's really yeah. great that you've done that. I, I was going to ask you a very similar question in terms of your own process because it, it's so vulnerable, right? And in some ways, you know, at least when it comes to gender trauma, my book, I can, you know, hide a little bit <laughs> behind scholarship and academia, even though there are personal stories in the book too, because that's how I write. I can even when I write academically, I can't take myself completely out of the writing. Um, but you know, your book there so much vulnerability, so much openness, and I very much echo that it's really good to have editors who understand when we need to take breaks. But I'm really curious about what motivated you to write your book and what your process was like in writing that book. Yeah, I think my main motivation was just that there was so much in my work as a writer that I felt like I was only scratching the surface off. So for context, like a couple kind of around six, seven months before I'd, I'd gone full-time freelance as a writer and I was writing quite a lot of um, what I would now describe as quite like top-line pieces around queerness and transness. So very much kind of um, quite palatable pieces, as it were. So, so, you know, things that are quite introductory, things that are quite education-focused, things kind of like how-tos and that kind of thing, which, you know, are valuable resources. But what I found was that I was only really scratching the surface with those things and I've always written um the majority of my writing is not intended to be published um it's just a what is just the easiest way for me to communicate my thoughts my practices my uh interactions you know all of those things and I think my process in writing was very similar to what you described I was sharing parts of myself that I've never shared before, like with family and like discussions around um, kind of my childhood. I, I, those, those two areas that I've, I'd never really investigated before and, and then produced something coherent. Um, so it was, it was difficult. Um, I, I, again, to echo you, I took a lot of breaks. I had a lot of meaningful conversations with my publishers and my editors. I um, started therapy alongside the book, so that not as a tool to make the book better, but as a tool for me to take what I've what I've realised in in writing and to take it there and, and evolve the thought process and evolve the trauma and uh, kind of put a full stop on it. I guess. Um, so yeah, it was a. I wrote it in a year, which um, was really nice. I was worried that I was going to have quite a short amount of time, but yeah. What when I look when I look at it now, I see it as a, almost like a timestamp. I'm like, right, this is what I was thinking at this point in my life. You know, I wrote it two years ago. This is how I felt then, and it. You know, I don't feel. Um, I think a lot of the time we can feel quite shameful about how we thought previously, and obviously, I'm I'm not in there spouting. Uh, like right-wing nonsense but I, you know I can see that my thought and my thoughts and my process have evolved quite a lot um which is really you know 
nice to to re- reflect on but yeah yeah i don't know about you i love what you said about kind of doing therapy alongside writing i mean as well as being a therapist i have a therapist because i believe that therapists need therapists and yeah when i was writing this book the stuff that was coming up for me in therapy was really interesting and and I really relate to what you said about I've always written as well, even as a kid, there's all these notebooks and pieces of paper where I would write poems. And when I look at the poems I wrote like 40 years ago, they're very different than what I would write now. And uh, But there is almost, um, I don't know about you, but for me, it was almost this drive to express parts of myself that maybe wasn't quite safe yet to express to the world. I realized that writing was really a refuge as well as a flight from everyday reality. And I wonder if that was similar for you, because I'm just so intrigued by the fact that so many of us, uh, trans and uh, non-binary folks write. And I'm like, what is it about writing that it gives a, I don't know. I was like, for me, it gave me safety, gave me a refuge, it gave me an outlet. And I wonder if it was like that for you as well. Yeah, massively. I think that's why a lot of us are in creative, the creative industries and creative roles, whether that's um, writing or, you know, fashion, art, photography, all of those things, they are, they're storytelling. And I think for me, what I love about writing the most is storytelling. Um, You know, not just my story, but being able to produce and share other people's stories as well, I I find really useful. and I think for me, yeah, that there is a, when I write, and I've noticed this at certain periods of time as a writer, more profoundly kind of during the time when I was writing the book, is that I almost have quite a lot of um, penny drop moments when writing about my own almost like psyche. Um, and it just allows me to, to, to just say things that I never even thought I was going to say, you know, when you, when, what I, what I love about writing is that when I get in a flow and when I kind of discover things as I'm writing, things come out that I had no idea were going to appear yet. That is, you know, self evolution. I'm like, God, I'm, I'm evolving without even realizing it. Like I'm, my thought is, 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 you know, I'm figuring things out by doing something that I love. And I think that's what I enjoy is being able to grow closer to myself. And hopefully when I, you know, with my work at Gay Times is when I help other people to do that, is that they can also have that realisation. Because, yeah, I agree, it's um, it's cathartic. Do you find, just a question for you, do you find, um, I think between me and you, there's quite a difference in... Uh, I guess the similarity that combines us is that we are aiming to provide support for other people and uh, kind of warmth through our writing. But I love I love talking to people that take that in quite like an academic group. Mm-hmm. And and in my experience in my writing, I take it in quite like a um, anecdotal group. Do you find, because you say you've got like a mixture of the two in gender trauma, did you find that quite easy and, and kind of nourishing to flip between the kind of more academic stuff and, and how you've experienced what that academia actually is? That's a great question. Um, yeah, it's, I you know, I think one of my trouble <laughs> of being a, 
um, recovering academic, independent scholar now that's kind of left academia, trying to leave it more and more as the years go by, is that I could never really fully separate um, academic knowledge, theoretical knowledge from lived experience, right? And as a social scientist, that's not necessarily a bad thing because I knew um, that that lived experience was part of knowledge production and whose story gets told uh, even in academia through questionnaires and research and all this stuff, kind of different ways that we have to construct science, right? Because science is a construct too, that there were certain parts of human experiences that were being left out. And so I always knew that lived experience was really important to bring into academia. But I think for like a good 20 years, I was trying to do that by foregrounding academia first, right? And then kind of just looking at things like autoethnography or other ways of doing academic work that really lifted up the voices of um, minoritized folks, mostly kind of minoritized folks when it comes to gender and sexuality and relational um, structures as well. But what I realized when I left academia is that there is a freedom in actually uh, writing in uh, whichever way I want to. And, and Mac John has been such a good friend and mentor uh, for me in that, uh, because they always encourage me to be like, your voice is, is, is great and you need to write for the general public and providers and write in a different way. And um, since I left academia uh, full time in 2015, it's the most productive I've ever been, which is really fascinating for me. I've written so much more since leaving the rigid structure because those rigid dogmatic structures just don't work for me. And so mm -hmm. being able to write something like gender trauma where I can use all this knowledge that I gathered over the years and I can access kind of scholarship and read it, but I can then, um, it's almost a process of alchemy. I can then take all of this mix it up also through the lenses of my own clinical experience as a therapist and my own personal experiences as kind of a trans non-binary queer person who has had like 50 years of life in the world and and in that and writing is that alchemic process for me if that if that makes sense right there's i put all of that in the cauldron and somehow here it emerged this book <laughs> that seems to have a lot of different elements and um and also the relationship right the relationship i have with the scholars who've come before me um the relationship i have with the community organizing that i've always been involved in and so knowing that knowledge is not just academic there's so much knowledge in community organizing there's so much knowledge that um is ignored or is then uh, appropriated and commodified. You know, there's like so much knowledge in queer communities, right, that's been commodified for an academic gaze. And that's really, I'm hoping that's not what I'm doing. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm actually trying to do the opposite and really honor like that knowledge from community and really um, try to demonstrate with my writing, with my nonfiction writing, that we can do something different, that it doesn't have to be an either or. Right, that it doesn't. We don't have to put academic knowledge here and then leave the experience somewhere else, and then just forget about what's happening in community because it's completely separate. No, not making sense. No, absolutely. It's almost ironic that there's a kind of quite a binary with with academia and lived experience. Like, and I love what you said about alchemy. You know, you mix 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 them up, and and then you, your writing process is that is that kind of 
experiment of you know what's gonna what's gonna come out and i think that's really helpful because i remember when i was um when i realized i was trans and non-binary i felt quite almost pressurized to know all of the theory to you know to fully know absolutely everything about the history and everything and you know obviously that's important and it's it's a gradual learning process but i think there's an argument that you don't you you don't have to know your queer theory in and out to be able to appreciate the the rich history of our community i think there is an argument that you do need to educate yourself on on lots of history that's absolutely that's not i'm not saying don't do that but i think yeah it, in 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 wider society how academia is revered as something that is very uh, proper and you must do this i feel like amongst the queer community there is also a an affinity with that idea too that you, you, how how dare you not know this very niche theorist and it's like well i'm afraid i don't so <laughs> um i sort of say yeah if anyone has any questions do uh do pop them in um but yeah in terms of like writing for me i'm thinking about future work at the moment and there's, there's a lot of stuff that's come up recently that i have um had discussions with publishers and editors about about this idea of like what queer people should write you know when we are given platforms or when we have ideas or when we approach publishers you know even though we may have experience as a writer and be have a broad portfolio there is still an expectation on us to write about queerness and transness. Um, do you find that there's a, do you find it difficult to approach writing in a way that isn't specifically focused on gender if you didn't want to? Or do you, you know, or you might happen, you might be happy to do that uh, continually. That's absolutely fine. But do you, do you feel pigeonholed? slightly at times oh absolutely i i love that you're bringing it up oh this i have so many thoughts right now from what you were saying jamie you know first i love what you said about that pressure in queer community especially white queer community to be quite academic and heady about our own identities and histories and i was like but there's so many other ways of like connecting to queer history that is not just through kind of academic books and yeah, I've, I've felt that, that pressure, and it kind of goes hand in hand with your other question of whether I feel happy to write about, you know, whether I feel pigeonholed. I think it's a yes and for me. You know, in one way, I was always fascinated by gender. My PhD is, is in what used to be called women's studies. There wasn't even gender studies at the time, so that ages me a little. You know, I was brought up as second wave feminist, which is also really interesting to see all the folks say, well, you know, it's an old people thing. I was like, I'm 50 and I was brought up as a second wave feminist. And also like older trans people exist. I know trans and non-binary folks were like 60 and 70 and 80. You know, it's like, this is not a young people's game, even the non-binary yeah. identities. You know, we might use different words, but there is a history there um, that I think gets lost sometimes in this focus on academia. And so in one way, like I've always been fascinated by gender and so I've always written about gender in a, in a range of ways. On the other hand, there's almost like this expectation that I will write about gender or that that's all I know about. And not just in writing, but even in my professional career. 
So sure, I do see trans clients and, and youth, and that's part of my work, but I've been hired to be a consultant for a, a different program here in town. And there was this surprise that I had this breadth of knowledge and experience beyond the trans people. I, I was like, I also know a lot about disability and sexuality and neurodivergence and a whole bunch of other things that people um, tend to forget because what they see is like that trans first, right? And so it's like, you're, you're going to write about gender. And when you write about gender, it's going to be about trans stuff, right? And actually, a lot of the things I write, even gender trauma, sure, it is informed by my identity and knowledge, but it's actually about gen everybody's gender from an intersectional perspective. It, it does talk about cis people it, as well as trans people. It talks about different intersections. Same with how to understand your gender. Um, it's really actually... I think even though trans and non-binary folks have found it helpful, it's mostly for cis folks. And it's really about them examining their ideas of gender. And so I do feel this pressure. And then if you don't fit in, like if you're not a trans author writing about trans stuff, people don't know where to put you, right? It's like, where do you put this book? Does Is it <laughs> in the LGBT studies? Is it somewhere else? And it's like, where'd you put this person? Where is your little box? And I'm like, well, I don't fit very well in boxes. I'm very <laughs> liminal in every way. Um, and um, and maybe I don't want to always write about uh, gender. You know, in fact, you know, thinking about future projects, I mean, I um, a big project is actually writing about sex and disability because there's so little and, you know, and that's one of my areas as well. And another project is I really want to write about my own experiences as a provider and how have I become the kind of provider I am, um, you know, in the mental health field. And that's got very little to do with, with my gender identity, if that makes sense. And, yeah, and I'm curious about the same question for you. Are you finding that you feel pressure to, like, fit in this box or, yeah? Yeah, Nick, thank you for your answer. It's really, really useful. And I think there's a there's an element to it where I yeah I I do feel I do feel pressurized and I do feel I wouldn't say restricted but there is definitely an element to it where um, for example with coming up with new ideas for an, another project to write on my brain does automatically go sometimes to 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 the gender lens. But part of me is like, well, of course it does, because that's how I see the world. Um, so I guess in my experience with, with looking at writing and broader projects, um, like fashion has always been an industry that I've worked in. I have a degree in and I, you know, that's my area. Um, and I think there's, again, like I say, there's a lens to, to it where yes i can talk about fashion and gender in my experience that is a huge part of of my of my journey and as you said earlier it's it's something that can kind of kick start a conversation about gender but sometimes i just want to I, I don't need to and i think that's that's what i try and see more of um for queer people and trans people out there is that you know when we get these opportunities um or when we you know we work and we receive success or whatever that we shouldn't um we shouldn't feel like we have to be eternally grateful do you know what i mean obviously we can be grateful but 
there's a level to it sometimes it's, i've noticed this a lot especially in like traditionally non-queer industries where they expect you to be incredibly grateful because they're essentially saying you wouldn't get this uh you wouldn't have this opportunity because no one else wants you or you know if i do work that's slightly more mainstream that that is a very uh, a feeling that is in abundance because they're like you're used to your kind of queer niche media over here we're bringing you this way you should be very grateful and of course you know of course i am but that needs to be normalized we need to normalize that because otherwise um we're going to be expected to have to bring up things that we don't necessarily always want to talk about because um, it, it impacts our mental health it impacts our lives you know we don't i think it's easy to forget we write about these things but we also live them so there has to be some form of cutting off point uh because otherwise you, your whole work life personal life is just full of it Oh, I relate to that so much. And I love what you said about like this expectations of almost being being grateful or having to be grateful in a different way than I think cis folks need to be. And, so, and, and I find it both in kind of the publishing industry and sometimes even in my own work, like as a provider and an educator, almost this kind of um, how, you know, almost this feeling of, um, wow, isn't that enough already that we're like, we're considering you like, um, we're considering you at all. And uh, it's almost like there is a piece of humanity that gets taken away from us in some ways. If uh, I don't know if I'm explaining myself clearly, because at the moment, it's more of a feeling in my body. When you said that, I was like, I know that experience. I know what that feels like, you know. Um, and yeah, the impact on our mental health. I think it's considerable in those moments, actually. Um, mm. And and it is sometimes, I think, a price that we pay with some visibility. And I mean, my level of visibility is tiny, I feel, you know, but, you know, compared to yours. But, um, but even with any visibility, I think there is kind of, um, yeah, this weight that comes from mainstream media, mainstream audiences. Am I making sense? Yeah, no, definitely. I think visibility is an interesting conversation as well. A lot of people at the moment are talking about visibility. And I think I've, I've always thought that um, in the industries that I work in, visibility is often seen as kind of the uh, the the golden ticket or like something that will, will is will, you know, end transphobia um, or something that kind of papers over all of the cracks and I think what I like to see visibility as is kind of one part of a of a cog of a you know of a circle because you can't um you can't place people in visible positions or, or have visibility for trans folks if you don't have an inclusive environment for them to begin with or if you don't have um accessibility or if you don't just even have just like a baseline knowledge of what it's like to be trans because not only does that make your representation and visibility tokenistic it makes it um the actual trans people involved it makes it kind of pointless in a way because they don't actually feel included but outwardly it may appear that there is visibility like in in my experience i've noticed a lot of that in kind of 
that my kind of modeling world and fashion world, like there's a lot of that that goes on, especially at Pride, um, where you just notice that they don't actually really care. They just know it's going to do well. Um, that's why I've kind of moved a bit of my work into kind of more consultation when it comes to these types of projects because, you know, I'm sick of it. I know I know lots of people in my industry who, who find it very frustrating. And I was like, well, let's try and let's try and do some work behind the scenes first so that when they do, you know, mm-hmm. quite rightly want to make trans people visible, which is not a bad thing, um, that they do it right and they do it with the best intention. Um, how do you find visibility as a concept? Do you find it quite frustrating? I relate to a lot of what you said, kind of even though it's a different context that I work in. <clears throat> I do find that sometimes it's like um, exploitative sometimes when it comes from that kind of mainstream world, right? It's like, am I just here to take a box or do you genuinely see me and see my expertise and my skills and my value, right? And, I, and, and also visibility, you know, a lot of us have trauma, um, because a lot of us have been targeted for not conforming to certain expectations of gender often. And I think that, I don't know for you or other people, but for me, visibility also brings um, some trauma responses and some fear. Every time I have a book coming out, you know, everybody's like, oh, it's so exciting. You have a book coming out. And I'm like, I'm nauseous. My muscles are really tight. I'm kind of bracing also for like uh, potentially um, kind of, hateful responses i might open my mail which i did the other day and found some hate mail from somebody who sent it from my website you know and at times i also find beautiful messages of what my writing is meant to people and what my visibility means to people but visibility also makes us targets as long as there isn't enough safety in dominant culture to kind of really um protect us to a point right there's like there's so much even just casual transphobia, you know, not even just the the pointed hate, but just the casual transphobia that's everywhere um, can be really uncomfortable in a lot of, you know, and, and feel really unsafe. And I think it also triggers kind of past trauma for me, um, for sure. And so it's always that visibility management that people talk about, right? Where am I visible and how am I visible and how do I um kind of also protect myself and and even within queer community that visibility can be odd because it can set you apart a little bit from other folks who are not as visible and make you even a target within your own community sometimes in a weird way and um and then it it's just i don't know it feels challenging sometimes i'm like i need to be really careful about anything i say in public because you know um because it has weight it's also about taking responsibility for my influence which i told i'm like yeah i want to be accountable for my power and influence and also we all carry so much drama i don't know am i making sense do you do you i don't know if you resonate with any of that or no massively i think there's a what you said there about um, the the safety aspect is incredibly true. You know, for in my, in my, it took me it didn't well it didn't take me very long to realise that in my industry, you know, visibility is good for some and bad for others, despite the fact that you still identify in the same way. You know, if you for me, for example, the amount of kind of negative hate that I get 
Yes, it's there, but it is no in no way um, on an equal playing field as if a black trans woman or a trans person of colour were to be in that situation. And I think that is something that is completely forgotten. The intersectionality of transness is forgotten when um, when transness is there because they think that they're ticking the box. So they don't really necessarily look at the other boxes that were involved when it comes to race, ability, uh, religion, you know, all of those things, they don't think about the nuances. Um, and yeah, I do agree. What I've learned is with visibility in terms of my, what I say and what I bow into the world is that I've realised that visibility for me is not actually that important. I don't, at the beginning of my um, career, I was I was a yes person. I was like, yes, I'll do this. Yes, I'll do that. And I, no, I just I needed to have money, but I also I wanted to get into this industry. Um, and now I've realised, I guess quite fortunately, that I don't need to say yes. I need to re- reserve myself and pre- preserve myself um, because if I don't have anything to say then I, I don't need to speak. And uh, and that's I think that's a really important thing to that I've learned is that just because there's an expectation on you to, to, to be in these spaces and to speak up and to say these kind of quite empowering things, it's like, well, actually, I don't, I don't have to. There is, there is no expect, there's no real expectation to do that. It's just a perceived expectation that comes from um, being visible. You know, I, I very much enjoy now being very selective with what I do, very conscious of what I do because um, it's, it's important. It's important to do that. Um, we have a question. I Absolutely. I saw that. It was something about can presence, uh, thoughts on our presence simply being enough. Is that the one that you were looking at as well? It was, yeah. Yeah. I, I love that presence being enough and it reminds me of um um one of my I was like what have I done here there we go um one of my um friends and and here in community Andrea Jenkins who talks about was a um very openly African-American trans woman and city councillor now um talking about being in the room changes the room right that that point about presence and yeah i'd love to hear your thoughts about presence being enough yeah i think definitely like i said just now there's a there's an element to it where it's like if you are if you yeah if you are there and you make people listen and people are just able to witness your presence in a space Absolutely, there's power in that. And I think, again, it comes to this idea that I was saying where there's often a lot of expectation. I get a lot of messages from people that are kind of going into work or going to uni or going um, into new industries and they're trans and they want to kind of, uh, they want to change the workplace or they want to change their environment. They want to overhaul it and make it trans-inclusive. And I'm like, you know what, that's obviously not a bad thing. But I think... And I'm not saying don't do that, but what I'm saying is, do you want to do this or do you think you should do it because of the expectation that you think is upon you to to go in and change it? Definitely in my experience, I've found that. And I think that question is right. If you just go in and, and you're yourself and you're present, 
that that is enough there is that there's such a kind of disparity in terms of how um, powerful we are in society and how much expectation is put on us and how so like the less kind of the the more marginalized you are there's almost more pressure or more um expectation on you to to, to be perfect and you know it's like if you see if you see how often in the queer community when queer and trans people maybe say the wrong thing or 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 don't speak up on certain things and it can be very easy for them to be um kind of shamed in a way but then if you were to look at wider society look at all of the white cis men that are just kind of spouting rubbish you know that's maybe a bit of a, a difficult analogy i'm not saying that people should be held accountable but I just think expectation is something that's really important to acknowledge there. Um, I, yeah, I agree. I, I really feel that it's like um, sometimes I think about it as the pressure of representation, you know, right? And and kind of almost being put on this like pedestal. And it's like, yeah, but we're rather than being able to simply exist as a human and not alongside other humans who is very fallible. I've definitely like I've used language that's outdated now to talk even about my own identity or trans identities because I didn't know any better. You know, that I've used words that now Generation Z would be really outraged about, like female body, the male body, that then I realized that that actually reinforces the binary and there are better words, right? Um, but it's, yeah, it's this pressure of representation can feel really heavy at times. And so yeah, and, and and it often comes from the outside, right? Yes, I love that question, right? Is this what you want to do or is this what you feel you should do? Because that's the, the pressure on you to kind of represent community in a certain ways or move community forward um, in certain ways. And that's a lot uh, to carry in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because we're at the end of the day, we're, we're only people, you know, we're, and I think especially in the literary world, there's almost a, in the media, there's a presumption that people think that they know you very well or that they think that you're incredibly, uh, I don't, I don't like this word, but incredibly famous or incredibly like uh, successful or, you know, everything's perfect and they kind of think of you as, again they place their expectations of what they want from you or what they think that you should and are like and it's like well no i'm just someone that has you know we're just people that have happened to have fallen upon a platform and like everyone else we're learning publicly and we're learning gradually you know we just happen to to do it in ways that more people may see Exactly. Mm -hmm. And and hopefully, my hope is always that by being vulnerable and being human as much as I can, whether it's in my writing or whether it's on social media, that hopefully that encourages other people to be a little bit more um, kind of open to each other humanities because it's like it can um, it can be dehumanizing almost sometimes kind of the visibility within the community and that's uh, that doesn't serve anyone and there's a difference between that and being accountable right i always want to be accountable to community absolutely if i mess up i want to be called on as sonia renee taylor talks about you know the let's call on each other 
you know, when we're not living up to our uh, responsibility to be respectful and inclusive and um, in every way we absolutely can. And there's a difference between that and the dehumanization that sometimes can happen of like, um, yes, expecting immediate access or somebody, you know, who reads my books or listen to my podcast is going to know a lot about my life, but I don't know anything about theirs. So there's a little bit of a, a weird imbalance there sometimes. And I'm sure you experience that too. Right. And uh, that can be a little awkward sometimes to manage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very, it can be very awkward. And I think, yeah, there's a, there's a definite, um, like an expectation that people want they they almost see us as as resources that they can take from. Yes. And I think what I found as a writer is that, and this has been a fairly recent uh, revelation, I guess, but in the past kind of year or so, I've realized that although I share quite vulnerable moments online, I decide to do those. You know, I no longer I'm kind of, falling into this trap of expectation, I make a very conscious decision to share that. It's not. Be- it's no longer because I think I need to, it's because I want to and I have a desire to. And what I think that comes with is people just presume that you're an, a complete open book and that, you know, you'll share everything and that all, all these things. And social media definitely doesn't help that sometimes because people constantly want access. Um so yeah, boundaries have been really important for me. Do you find that in your work? Because obviously, as a, as you said, a recovering alcoholic, not alcoholic, as a recovering <laughs> academic. I mean, it can feel um, like that some days. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you find that that people kind of want a lot from you or want a lot of advice from you? It can happen, and and that sometimes people usually it's more. Uh, I feel like the most trans and non-binary folks and queer folks are actually really respectful and mindful, but sometimes this, you know, especially cis white folks who have a certain level of entitlement might ask for resources or something and then get quite upset if I don't respond, right? Um, I had a cis person wanted me to go and talk to their employee group uh, for Trans Day of Visibility, and I was like, great, this is my fee, and it was a big corporation, like, big corporation, and they were like, oh, we're the employee group, we don't have any money, and I was like, this is really problematic that you're asking a minoritized person, <laughs> self-employed, to do work for free when you're such a large corporation. I mean, community, I will give everything I got as within my boundaries and my capacity, right, but I, I don't know that to a problematic corporation, right? It goes back to that tokenizing and, and being seen as a resource. But some sometimes people get quite upset. Um, and like I said, folks with more dominant identities, I think it's that piece of entitlement um, can get quite upset where you're not when you're not as available and you're like, well, this is a chance for you to educate us. I'm like that. And it goes back to what you were saying. I was like, well, do I want to educate you? Like you're a large corporation. If you yeah. want my expertise, absolutely, I can come and educate you. But I don't owe it to you. This shouldn't be like, consider yourself lucky, trans person, then giving you a chance to talk to this, you know, large audience or that give you this exposure. I was like, no. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. Yeah, it goes back to that, ex- the, uh, the, the grateful mantra that you should be grateful. And it's like, well, 
No, like many, this analogy has been used many times before, but if if we were, like you say about going in and doing talks, I've definitely experienced that. It's like if I had any other form of service, if I was doing like, if I was a mechanic, um, God forbid, but if I was a mechanic and I went in and, and you were like, oh no, we're, um, we're a huge company. We actually want you to do this for free because it will look good on your CV. The mechanic would obviously say, no, thanks, bye. Um, and what we arguably what we do is a lot more uh, emotionally intense um, than than what a lot of people are required to do in their jobs. Um, so yeah, definitely financial. Um, that yeah, it's a massive problem and it's a, it's a struggle. But hopefully, with Pride this year, um, I don't know about you, but Pride for me is kind of beginning work is beginning to kind of float in and i'm already kind of like no um my brain can't take it i'm already worried that i'll collapse if i take it all on um uh, yeah, yeah i love what you said about boundaries and and for me it's like during those moments it's like also there's like a broad community and sometimes i'm like well actually whose voice can i uplift and also you should you know is this a paid gig and is this a paid gig that I can pass on to somebody else in community, you know, and especially like uh, trans folks of color were often not seen as palatable in certain environments where by, um, um, I might be approached because I'm like that people see me as trans masculine and I'm light skinned. And so that's appealing to them. And I feel like here, I actually have somebody who would be much better for this and you should also pay them. Um, and it's, it's also kind of relying on community and creating new norms. I love there's a comment of somebody who's in this position with a large corporation who was tapped to work on an inclusive project and is being asked to recruit more people from the community. Yeah, I would be absolutely nervous to approach others because it's like, what is this about? Who who benefits? Who's compensated for their labor, right? All of those mm. things. That, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd say in my experience, last year was the first year that I kind of properly started doing consultancy um, on predominantly like on Pride work and on kind of campaign material. And it involves, as that question says, it involves kind of having to go to other people and say, hello, um, you know, I'd love for you to do this. And it is scary, but I guess it, what I'd advise in a way would be to, to arm yourself with as much information as possible to arm yourself with like, are the, you know, like you say, are, is there compensation? Who else is doing it? Um, what is the framework like? Is there safety provisions? Like all of these things, just try and um, go in with like a very open dialogue and make it clear that you're there open for questions um, and try not to feel disheartened if things don't go to plan because often it's nothing to do with us, it's to do with another person's fears or another person's insecurities you know all of those things um but yeah it's a it's an incredibly it's an incredibly difficult thing to do because we know as trans people how vulnerable it can feel to go into spaces and like the question says in work and inclusivity and to feel with your guard up a bit you know to kind of be in that fight or flight and um, to almost ask other people to try that and to be like, I want you to come here um, and it's going to be fine, is, that can be stressful. Um, just as we, as we near the end, I've got a final, a final question for you. 
what and this is a very broad question i apologize <laughs> but for people for people that are watching or people that may watch what advice would you give to someone that wants to get into the literary world or the publishing world what kind of one nugget of advice would you say this and don't ever forget it <laughs> <laughs> that, that is a hard question oh i might need to think about that for a minute i know i realized i looked at the time and i was like oh jimmy and i just really got into it we didn't read anything from our books hope that <laughs> <laughs> a great job. that was like but this is so fun i'm loving it i was like well i think in terms of advice is um i think for me the great reminder and the great anchor is write what you want to write, which I know seems really, really simple, but I think there can be so many pressures in the publishing world, like what are the trends and what does your editor want and what does the public want? And so for me to go back and, of course, being open to feedback, it's very helpful. Being aware of the trends can be really helpful. But ultimately, I write because I feel there are some things that I've processed in certain ways that I want to share with the world. And it has to be my voice and my message. I'm not going to be somebody else. And so I think if there was one piece of advice, it's just know what you want to write about and stay true to kind of your own voice and to your own vision. Even when it seems difficult or when it gets rejected maybe by some people, the publishing world is really vast. You know, even if uh, some sections of it might reject you, there are so many different publishing presses. There are so many different editors, different mentors, different agents, whatever it is. It's okay if you have a strong vision and a strong voice to stay true to yourself. I don't know. Maybe it sounds really corny and cheesy, but I think if there's one thing, that's mine. What's yours? Yeah, no, I completely agree. It's, it's, it, it, yeah, it, it, I know what you mean. Sometimes when I say things like that, it can feel a bit uh, cheesy, but it's true. You know, at its core, what you've said is completely true. Um, yeah, and I, I would, I guess, to echo from our whole conversation is to is to is to make sure that you do something that you love, and to not do something that you think you should do. Because yeah. what can happen? What one of the biggest mistakes that I made was to do that, and then you end up forgetting the things that you actually have a passion for, um, and. Also with writing, you know, with writing a book, you have to have a real hunger for it. You have to have a real, like, appetite, a real kind of investigative nature, or just a just a desire to, because it's a long, you know, it takes a long time. It's a, it's a really long process. Um, in their shoes took kind of from the initial kind of meetings to publication, like nearly three years. So it's a, it, a long time. So you need to really... Make sure you love what you're writing about, love what you're doing. Um, and look after yourself, I think. Look after yourself because it's whatever you write about is, is an incredibly difficult thing to sit down as one person and write a whole book. Incredibly difficult. Um, so, yeah. This has been lovely. I, do, I love yeah. you. You're I know. I was like, this is wonderful. And also for people who don't know, like this is the first time we've met each other. So this is yeah. just really beautiful and I'm loving every moment of it. <laughs> it looks like there's a request of could we end with a reading? How do you feel about that? Like reading a little bit? Of course. Do you want do you wanna have you got have you got it there with you? Yeah, I do have something ready from my book. Do you have something ready from your book? Yeah, yeah, you go first, love. 
Okay. Uh, yeah, so I had a few things, but then we, we got into this beautiful conversation and I was like, this is so much fun. Uh, <laughs> but I will read, um, I'll read from my la the last chapter of my gender trauma book. And it's a section that is called Collected Dreams, Visions and Possibilities. And it's, uh, it's a chapter around moving towards healing. What is the a decolonial understanding of gender? We cannot bathe in the same river twice. I don't believe that we can go back to a mythical pre-colonial past. We cannot erase history, trauma, and just pretend it never happened or is still happening. As a trauma therapist, I witness these desires on an individual basis almost daily. So many of my clients wish, wish to just forget, pretend whatever happened did not happen, or think that eradicating the perpetrator in some way might bring peace. However, when there has been a wound, the wound needs to be tended to. It needs to be noticed, cleaned, and treated, and it takes time to heal. What would a pre-colonial past even look like for many of us who were involuntarily or voluntarily displaced in a number of ways, including due to gendered violence? I think that comfort and connection can be found in the past, but I'm not so sure that our future can be found there. I've written elsewhere that to think about the future directions of non-binary genders is science fiction, and a number of much better authors than I have engaged and continue to engage in those questions. I do know that healing from gender trauma is a landscape that I do not know if we can even begin to imagine. However, it is a critical feeling of the possibility that has not come to be yet. I sense into it when I'm around other people who actively challenge normative ideas of gender in favor of authenticity, no matter what their own gender identities and experiences might be. I taste it when I'm in communities where consent, healing, and relationships are at the center, the heart of what we're doing. I smell it in the wind of younger generations who often no longer think like us when it comes to gender, but are still shaped and impacted by our trauma. I believe that healing from gender trauma lives in the spaces between us, the spaces across which we try to reach for one another when we dream of community, when we create structures centered around healing justice and liberation, when we strive for disability justice and access, when we dare to envision inclusive spaces. There is no definitive answer here, no listicle I can give you or magic formula for how to fix the painful impact of this historical, cultural, intergenerational, and social trauma of a rigid gender binary. However, I believe that if we can start to notice the wound, engage with it critically, start to clean it up within and between ourselves, we can start to plant the seed for another world of possibilities. This is a world in which we're connected to the past, where we do not deny or erase our history, but do not get stuck in it. Rather, we move forward, reclaiming what is ours and creating anew what was destroyed. This book is a long, open-ended invitation to this dream of gender liberation for our collective healing. How will you respond? <laughs> Beautiful. I love the sensory language you use, like the smell. The, I love that. Very, Thank very, you. very clever. Um, I'm just going to turn the light on because I've realized it's got dark. Well, yes, me it is much later where you are. Absolutely. Go for it. <laughs> no. I'll leave this here.
So I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the section from the chapter around mental health. Mm-hmm. So this chapter is called The Stapler and the Jelly. One thing I always think about when it comes to my own mental health is the image of when someone has suspended a stapler inside a mound of jelly. Yes, that's right. A stapler in jelly is what is the one visual depiction of my mental health that I have chosen to put into writing here for you. If you don't know what I mean, pop the book down and go and have a quick Google. It's a whole entity suspended in a translucent, fruity casing that you can see through. To the untrained eye, it may look impenetrable. The stapler is being held by the matter around it. However, one slice through and it will fall and no longer be encased by the fruity support that it has found itself within. Similarly, with my brain and my mental health, it's something that is a whole living, breathing thing. And instead of being surrounded by jelly, it's being held together by me. In this analogy, the stapler is my mental health and the jelly is me, my thoughts, my brain, my actions. It's being held by something that you can see. You might have to squint to work out what it is, but you can see it. It's tangible. You know exactly what it is. But just like a stapler in a mound of jelly, sometimes you can't see mental health for what it actually is. You have to spin it around, squint, hold it up to the light and study it to truly realise what you're looking at. Our mental health can often feel like this. When we are living such busy, stressful and nuanced lives, we can feel like the thoughts and feelings that we are having are actually just normal. They're simply part of our existence, a sidecar to our main body in which the negative feelings and coping mechanisms we enact on a daily basis to deal with the way that the world treats our bodies becomes normalised in our own heads. Commonplace. Every day. I think many non-binary people believe that our lived experience and the impact that has on our mental health is something we can't change due to the fact that the staring, the comment, the misgendering, the abusive language aren't anomalies. They're everyday occurrences. So we often stop trying to navigate the after effects in our minds when these instances happen because we are so used to them. We've become numb to our own trauma. But being numb doesn't mean you don't care. It just means that it doesn't surprise you. It doesn't shatter your world or throw you off centre. It just sits on top of you. You don't really feel it, you know it's there. Like when a part of your body becomes numb, you can see the pressure being applied, but you can't feel a single second of it. This, for me, is why it became so hard to realise that my mental health was so bad, because it had become so commonplace in my day-to-day life to feel down that I didn't actually realise that my permanent mood was now, in fact, so. Wow. Thank you for that. That is such Thank a you. powerful part yeah. of the book. Like, and I love that yeah. image. I remember when I read the book, I was like, this image is yeah. unforgettable. <laughs> Floating around. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute dream. Thank um, you. This has been wonderful. I know there was that sometimes uh, Joe said people share what they're reading. I don't know if you, if you want to do that, but I know I want to uplift this book by Theo Lawrence, who's actually local to me and was also published by... Jessica Gingsley, and it's the Trans Self-Care Workbook, which is honestly a lifesaver right now because I love the joy and the celebration and the exercises and just the beautiful drawings um, that 
just some of the drawings are so joyous and you can color them in. Anyway, I just wanted to uplift Theo's book. Love that. Love that. Yeah, no, I've, I've, um, JKP have got some amazing books out at the moment around autism and gender, ability, disability and gender. I think, yeah, JKP are brilliant. If you don't know them, uh, they produce kind of academic and non-fiction focused books on gender and sexuality. They're wonderful. And they're also always looking for authors. So go and, go and get involved. Absolutely. Um, well, thank you so much. This has been so just beautiful and nourishing. And thank you for people, to people for tuning in. I think we're, I'm going to try and save this. So maybe some of you are watching this later. And just a reminder that if you're interested in Jamie's beautiful book, or my book, you can get both of them from Pages of Hackney that can be delivered by bike to you if you live locally or that can be posted or you can go pick it up or browse in the store. And uh, just thank you as well to Pages of Hackney for this opportunity and for us to get to know each other really in front of everybody, just publicly. I know. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you, Pages of Hackney. Thank you to yourself. You've been wonderful. And uh, yeah, I will see you very soon. I hope so. Yes. Bye. Bye, my love. Bye.